Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by none other than Aquarium Co-op. Head on over to AquariumCoop.com. Check out all the awesome things that we have for sale at AquariumCoop.com. The Aquarium Co-op coarse sponge filter that sinks instantly to the bottom. Nice coarse foam so you don't have to do the maintenance all the time. It is a wonderful product. Pair that up with some Aquarium Co-op airline tubing with a Zis Neverclog Airstone, and you are set to have air-driven, wonderful filtration in your aquarium. Not only do we have things like the Aquarium Co-op sponge filter, we have a wide selection of extreme foods with my personal favorite, the krill flake, that practically everything in my aquarium or in my fish tanks will eat. Uh, Couple that with extreme slow-sinking pellets or the uh, semi-floating or the fast-sinking pellets as well. Fantastic fish food that I actually has kind of turned into my staple uh, super no super red super nose. There you go, folks. Super red bristle nose staple food. It's got spirulina in it. It's got krill. Just a fantastic food all around. And the colors that I get in my super reds are fantastic. And in addition to those kinds of products, we have a massive selection of live aquarium plants. Valisinaria, water sprite, uh, dwarf chain sword. What else are we bringing on? Red melon sword, red flame sword. I'm always trying to keep things like uh, Java moss on on steel mats in stock for you so if you want that for your shrimp tank we've got it floating christmas moss balls such a cool thing to add to your aquarium to get this like mid to lower level water column feature that if you've got shrimp in your tank the shrimp are going to love interacting with that thing seeing your fish swim around a floating christmas moss ball um, those we always like to keep in stock well we like to keep all of our plants in stock but those usually have no problem keeping those in stock and they are just such a cool feature to add into your aquarium Let's see what else. Jungle Valcenaria, uh, Crypt. We recently brought on Crypt Wendedi Green. There's my favorite Crypt, Crypt Tropica, that is just this beautiful textured leaf Crypt. So, ton of different plants for you. Aquarium Co-op, for the most part, aside from selling you the actual aquarium itself and the fish, uh, one-stop shop, fish foods, uh, dechlorinators, all the accessories you need, aquarium lighting. Right now, we were able to secure some 3.0s, so time-relevant Fluval 3.0s, head on over to AquariumCoop.com. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Friday, August 21st, 2020. My guest today is John Lyons. John is the curator of fishes at the University of Wisconsin Zoological Museum. Previously, John spent over 30 years as a research scientist with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. In addition to his work with the native fish of Wisconsin, John also has a passion for the fish of central Mexico and serves as the chair of the North American branch of the Gadead Working Group. John's education includes a Bachelor of Science in Biology from Union College in New York and Master of Science and PhD degrees from the University of Wisconsin. John is also a frequent contributing author to Amazonas Magazine. So John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Randy. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, to make this happen. And, you know, w w it seems like with more and more of my guests, I have have these things where I have to reschedule with them. So thank you for showing me grace and uh, still being willing to, to come on and, and uh, be a fish nerd and, and talk fish with me. Well, I'm, I'm retired, so every day is a Saturday for me, you know. Oh, nice. <laughs> I'm partially retired, I should say. My wife jokes at that one, but... I only work 40 hours a week now instead of 60. Oh, and I was going to say, are you so retired that you don't know what day of the week it is? Or are you still... 
Uh, occasionally. Yeah. Occasionally. Because that's when you know you're uh, fully retired. Uh, I have enough, enough <laughs> obligations that I might yeah. be off by a day, but usually I at least know it's a weekday versus you're, a weekend. You're, you're, you're plus or minus 24 hours on knowing what day yeah. it is. Yeah, that's, roughly. That's awesome. I think my neighbors, my neighbors, they, they retired a couple of years ago, and they're at least they're at least plus or minus 36 hours to 48 hours on what day <laughs> it is. It, it is awesome. You know, sometimes when you wake up and you're a little disoriented, yeah, you, you have to look at a calendar because you're like, whoa, what day is today? Oh, but- good times. <laughs> so, um, you know, as, as the bio says, I mean, you have just this wealth of, of um, academic experience, uh, you know, ichthyologist. It, 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 I don't, I don't want to say in the hobby per se, but as an ichthyologist, you have professional experience as a research scientist with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. Um, so clearly a passion for fish. So, you know, to kick off the origin story for you, John, and, and you know, don't, don't spare any details for us. How does it all start for you? What's, what's like your earliest memory that, that starts this, this passion for fish and ichthyology? Well, um, my earliest memories are I've always really liked fishing. And so my various earliest memories, I'm probably four years old, and, and it's catching fish. And for whatever reason, you know, when I was just catching little perch or something, nothing, you know, exotic. And for whatever reason, I, I really took to that. And that became a passion. I just liked being around water, being on the water, in the water. And so once I learned to swim, I got a little snorkeling mask and I would, you know, snorkel among the fish. And I thought that was that was really great. And I still loved fishing for them. Um, and then when I was 10 years old, well, no, I, when I was 11, 11 years old, for my birthday, my parents got me, a, you know, a little 10 gallon setup. And I had seen, you know, friends and relatives had, you know, tropical fish tanks in their house. And this is back in the 60s. Um, was this New York? Yes, this is when okay. I was growing up in southern New York. Okay. And um, so they got me, a, you know, one of these in metal frame things and, and you know, multicolored gravel and fake plastic plants, you know, and this box, little box filter in the corner. And, you know, I just thought this was fantastic. And I, you know, would save all my allowance and birthday money and go to the pet store and, you know, buy various fish with really no idea of what their needs were and no idea of what who was compatible with whom and, and, you know, what kind of water quality they would need or anything like that. And I just dumped them in the tank cause they were cool looking. And of course I just killed everything, you know, fairly regularly. And this is back before people really understood the need for water changes. So, mm. you know, the tank would just get really <laughs> scuzzed, but I had to write my room and, you know, I loved it. And I, every morning I'd wake up, I'd see these fish swimming around or I'd, see them floating dead depending on the day but um you know and i had things like guppies and platies and i was able to breed a few of them which i thought was amazing and so that coupled with my just inherent interest in fish the fact that you know if i couldn't be outside actually catching them or observing them i could just be watching them in my in my room and and i could get these these species from you know far off lands at least Historic, you know, their origins were from far off lands, and you know, see these crazy, beautiful species. So, so that got me into fish keeping, which I've, you know, done, you know, with highs and lows, on and off for over 50 years now. And then, when I went to college and and um, started in, in an academic career, I really, really liked 
you know, fish in the outdoors, but I really had no clue. I had no role model, so I had no idea you could even make a career of it. And I hadn't done very well in science in, in high school, so I was pretty intimidated of doing anything related to science. Um, in high school, what, what did you think your career path was going to be? Well, I was pretty adrift. I really didn't. <laughs> and that was the point. Um, you know, I really didn't have a, you know, some people know they want to be a doctor. Some people know they want to be an engineer, whatever it is. But uh, so I would tell people and when I first started college that I was going to be a lawyer, not because I had any passion for the law. I, you know, I was interested a little bit in politics and particularly international relations. And I thought I might be able to do something there. But but, you know, I had no role models of biologists or, or at least biological scientists. Um, and so I didn't really know that, you know, I was vaguely aware there were careers in this in this field, but I had no way of knowing how you would go there, how you do that. So I started off in college, you know, political science major, pre-law kind of thing. And I really didn't like it. And um, I started to think, you know, I love the outdoors. I love fish. I love aquatic systems. You know, I got the perception maybe there'd be a way to to uh, to make a career out of that. And so midway through college, I switched to a biology major, which was a big scramble. And even then, when I went to grad school, I, you know, I went to a wanted to do something with fish at that point. But I, I was still a little vague on where I would go, what I would end up doing. And so I just wanted having spent my whole life in the Northeast, mainly in New York, I just wanted to be in a different part of the country. Mm -hmm. And I really like trout fishing. And so I basically picked people places that there were lots of trout. And so that was the upper Midwest and the, um, and the Rockies. And through a variety of sort of fortuitous events, I ended up at Wisconsin, which is a fantastic aquatic biology school. And there are certainly lots of trout around here, but there are so many other uh, interesting species as well. And so I came here for graduate school and really just immersed myself in in the study of, of fish and fishes and fisheries. And and so I had tanks in my office. I was out collecting fish every day. I was teaching classes where we do experiments and, you know, all sorts of things. So I just immersed myself and I absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I had sort of found my passion somewhat by accident when I, when I look at the, you know, the sort of this chain of events that got me there. Mm -hmm. But once I found it, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I was very lucky when I came out of grad school, I was able to get a, a job for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, which is the, the management agency that's in charge of all the aquatic systems and fish and fisheries in the state. And I just had a wonderful job for 33 years that I just loved. And, um, allowed me to get out in all these different environments, all these different species, work on on questions, applied questions that were really important in terms of protecting resources and protecting species and enhancing things. And so I really loved that job. Um, and so then people always ask, well, how did you end up in Mexico? How does that lead to Mexico? And again, it was one of these sort of chance things. Um, when I was getting close to finishing my, my PhD, I was going to go to a conference in Colorado with um, a number of other grad students to present some of my work. And we got together and we got a van from the university and we were going to drive all night and go out to Fort Collins, Colorado and give a, you know, give to this meeting and give presentations and so forth. 
And I got a phone call. I was sort of the organizer of the van. And uh, I got a phone call from a guy in a different department named Eduardo Santana. And he was a bird ecologist, actually, from the wildlife department. And he asked just, you know, could I bum a ride with you guys out to the conference? And, oh, sure, you know, of course. And so we ended up, by chance, ended up sitting in the back of the van. You know, we're taking turns driving at, you know, 2 in the morning. And we just fell into these really deep conversations. And I was already interested in Latin America and tropical fishes and so forth. And so we became really close friends as a result of that trip. And then about a year later, when he finished his degree, he got a job in Mexico um, at a newly formed biosphere reserve, the Sierra de Manatlan, which is in the west central part of the, of the mountain, sort of the coastal mountain range in the west central part of the country, west of Guadalajara. And he was a bird guy. He was in charge of sort of all the animal life within this reserve. And I was basically the only person he knew who knew anything about fish. So even though I knew nothing about Mexican fishes, nothing about Mexican environments, he invited me down. You know, he said, we've got to do a survey of this reserve. You want to come over and, and uh, help on this survey? And I jumped at the chance and, and have never looked back. It was wonderful. We went all over the place, met a bunch of good people, um, collected a lot of cool fish, including Gadeads. They were the first fish I ever caught in Mexico. And um, from there, you know, it just gradually evolved into lots of different places and lots of different people and, and various projects over the years. But that was back in the mid-'80s, so it's 35 years ago mm. now. Yeah, that sounds like one of the opportunities that I would I would pay somebody to, to <laughs> I'll pay you to go help you <laughs> do this research yeah, and do this collecting yeah. studies. And, uh, and again, it was just luck. If I hadn't yeah. had this this he hadn't come along on this on this ride, we hadn't become friends, you know, he hadn't gotten this job and then thought mm -hmm. of me. I don't know if this any of this ever would have developed. Yeah. Weren't the pre-COVID days great when you could just jump in a van with a bunch of people and go across <laughs> yeah. the country? My yeah, goodness. that was a pretty fun trip for lots of reasons. But, <laughs> so let's. But that was one of the high points. So there, there, you, you've definitely piqued my my interest in a, in a few different points, and I think one of them is uh, if we were to go back and you know when you changed gears in undergrad. So I know that from my own personal experience, wanting to be uh, a more formal uh, business major, and then realizing that I didn't spend nearly enough time in pre calculus in high school to hit the calculus prereqs for a business degree. I switched gears and went to econ because you didn't need the prereq, but it was practically cool. the same degree. That was, you know, not an overly difficult thing, but I know that just changing your major in college is very difficult. And you went from a political science, this soft science kind of thing, to a hard science. That seems like a prereq nightmare. Like, can you can you kind of unpack that a little bit? Like, how how difficult was that for you? And especially like the 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 biologies and microbiologies and all those things. If you didn't do well in high school. It sounds like a tough road, a tough road for you. Yeah, well, I was. The reason I didn't do well in high school is because I really didn't apply myself. Mm -hmm. That was part of the yeah. problem. Um, and so, by the time I went to college, I'd kind of grown up a little and was used to, you know, putting in the work, and had the motivation to do the work. So that that part was just, you know, getting my act together. But yes, I was definitely intimidated. I didn't think, you know, given my poor background, I didn't think I'd do well. But and so originally I thought, well, I'll sort of do a hybrid. I'll do some sort of environmental law, um, you know, where I'll have this environmental focus, but it'll still be law school. But I should take some biology classes, you know, and, and chemistry classes to kind of get that environmental background. And so I thought I'd give it a try. And um, 
the summer, this would have been, I started taking, as a freshman, I just took all the political science and economics and history and all those sorts of things. Um, and then as a sophomore, I decided I would take some of the science as well as continuing to take the political science stuff. And um, so the summer before, I had a, a job as a security guard, and it was really super boring <laughs> job. I hated, but, sure. but and I did different stuff, but at times I would be just sort of in a building, you know, kind of just sitting there for insurance purposes after hours, and I had sort of nothing to do, and it was really boring. But what I would do is I'd bring in these sort of high school chemistry books and high school biology books, and I would just read them, and I would just study them, and, um, you know, do the exercises in the back. And so I really tried to sort of make up for all my deficiencies um, from high school through that, that summer. And that actually did help a lot. So when I came into these classes, um, they were they were hard. It was an adjustment without a doubt. But I, you know, I wasn't completely green. I'd been working on this for a few months and sort of remembering or learning things I should have learned in high school. So I, um, so yeah, it took a, it took a year and, and I was able to graduate in four years without having to take extra time, but it meant that my last couple of years, I was just jam packed and I was, you know, my last year of college when you're usually, you know, kicking back and you have senioritis, you know, I'm taking organic chemistry and Mm. taking all these hard classes with, you know, these, all these sophomores who want to be doctors. And so it was a little bit weird that way, but, but I managed it. Mm. And then uh, to go back also to, you know, you kind of glossed over your tropical fish, like aquarist hobbyist experience. So I want to know, can you dive a little bit more into, you know, what did you, what did you dabble in with uh, tropical fish? Did you, you know, did multiple tank syndrome hit you hard and you ended up, you know, putting 50 fish tanks in your dorm room? Like what was your experience with the actual aquarium hobby side of things? Yeah, I d- no, I never had multiple tank syndrome, mostly because I never had much money. <laughs> and my my mom, you know, there was no way I could have more than one tank, you know, or maybe two. And so um, so for the first few years, I was really in tropical fish, but I really I had no mentors. I had no. Um, you know, I had little access to good information, so I was just kind of winging it and really I really killed a lot of fish. I really didn't know what I was doing. And, um, so about the time I went to, I sort of, I wouldn't call it a 180, but I started to get more interested in local fish that, you know, I could like catch a small fish. Mm. And um, I started to realize that, yeah, you do need to change the water more months. And so I never, I never really had, you know, a giant, a room full of fish tanks that wouldn't have been allowed. And I, to be honest, couldn't afford it. And I wasn't handy enough, you know, to make my own or anything like that. And so I, I just have one or two tanks. Um, and because of one or two tanks, I eventually ended up probably paying more attention to them than I would have if I had, you know, 50. And so I, um, I just your video yeah we have a a little poor connection right now so i went ahead and killed the video just to see if that would help it trying to figure out why they weren't doing so well or why they wouldn't breed or you know if they got some sort of disease you know how to treat everything university facilities at my fingertips so 
we had all these sort of teaching labs where we just had tank, you know, big tanks, and we had tanks with chillers on them for cold, cold water fishes. We had, you know, all sorts of, you know, plumbing and everything to make setting up tanks easy. So, so at that point, um, yeah, then I had a whole, all sorts of tanks scattered around campus wherever I was, you know, had lab space and so forth. And I was doing little experiments with fish and maintaining them in these tanks and so forth. And they were all local Wisconsin fishes at that point. So I wasn't, I mean, we, for class, we'd raise convict cichlids because they're really easy fish to breed. And we would, um, you know, we do that to, uh, we'd have, we'd have students do observations and do experiments. So I had convicts and I'd, I'd bring some home and just cause they're kind of a cool fish to, to watch, you know, mm -hmm. their behaviors are so interesting. So, and they're so easy to breed. So at that point, I might only have one or two at home, but, um, you know, I'd have a dozen at various points at the university that I was, and I shared this workload with a couple other equally passionate mm -hmm. fish heads. So, so we had a bunch of tanks and because we could just go out and collect the things ourselves and often we needed to collect them for various parts of our research that at that point, most of our tank space was devoted to, to local fishers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess few for few for tropical yeah I, I totally see that with anybody that's on the academic side where you do have you know just for work you you tend to have these labs that have multiple tanks and you're already working with fish so you know you're, you're kind of you're, you're inundated all day long with these fish tanks as you know as it is and that that tends to kind of satisfy the need to not necessarily have them at home you know yeah. and you know maybe you've got like no, the... I, I had a couple i had a couple at home mm -hmm. so i'd bring the you know the prettiest fish home or i'd bring these convicts home just uh -huh. to like watch them and... right right but yeah, and you're you're you know again, it's hard to if unless you've been there, it's hard to communicate just how much of your life graduate school takes. At least this sort of graduate school. So I, you know, when I'd come home, it it'd be late at night, and <laughs> last thing I wanted to do was mess around cleaning a fish tank because mm -hmm. that's all I've been doing all day. Exactly. You know? exactly. And so yeah, the home stuff was just a couple of small tanks, just to you know have interesting looking fishes. To, to look at when I was eating breakfast or something like that. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I had lots of tanks at, at, um, at school mm -hmm. and that's sort of how it, it stayed. And then when I worked for the DNR, started work for the DNR again, they didn't have the lab space or the facilities, but I'd always try to have a tank or two there when I, when I could. And, and then, you know, I'd start setting up a few more at home, but I never, I've never gotten to the point where I had a whole, you know, 50 tanks at once in my house. I think right now I have about a dozen and that's, uh, that's about as high a number as I've, I've had. It's, it's, it's funny that from it, when you're, when you're looking at it from the aquarist, you know, hobbyist perspective, um, you know, you're, 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 when you say a dozen, it's like, that's a respectable number, right? But to the average person, they're like, you're insane. You have 12 yeah, no, exactly. fish tanks in your house. What is wrong with you? But to an aquarist, it's like, that's a, that's a good start. You know, that's a solid yeah, number. <laughs> you have these people with fish rooms or fish houses or yeah, I'm, uh, you know, their whole basement is dedicated or their garage. And, yeah. Yep. I built and, a, 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 you know, a little 10 by 12, uh, walled off room in my garage, fully insulated, uh, yeah. plumb for auto water change. I've got, you know, my tanks range in, I've got uh, maybe four, four forty gallons. And then the rest are a combination of twenties, fifteens and tens. And, uh -huh. uh, you know, to, that's like the ultimate party trick for my wife 
It's like, hey, do you want to come see something? Do you want to come see? You yeah. want to come see Randy's see fish crazy room? My husband is? And yeah. and and these people have like a oh, fish room. What? Like they don't? I don't. They don't grasp it. And then the moment she opens the right. door, and it's like this: all the light from the LED lighting, the bubbling sounds, the you know linear piston air pump driving, you know, fifty different sponge filter combinations, and it's like what? Right. And one of the fr- one of the front and center tanks, the forty gallons, is one of my grow outs for for these uh, Periaba angelfish, you know? So there's like uh-huh. 50 yeah. juvenile angelfish just jam-packed into a 40-gallon. And it's and they're just, <laughs> you know, the moment they see the door open, they're like, feed me. And uh, yeah, so it just ends up being like the right. ultimate party trick. But yes, I'm, I fall into the... Um, you know, the crazy category. But then I always have to, I always have to preface it to these people, to, you know, to these friends that come over and say, but this is a small fish room. I'm like, there, yeah. there are people like in the, especially if you're in the Midwest and or East coast and you have a basement, I'm like, there's guys and gals that convert their entire basement into fish rooms and they have 140 gallon tanks, you know, like, so, yeah. so like wrap your mind around this little 10 by 12 room. That's small, right? Like this is, this is a small operation for the most part. So it's a, it's a funny thing, man. It's a real funny thing. Yeah. And the, you know, with me, the, um, the limiting factor has always been, well, there, there's certainly a space factor, but, but the, the, the real limiting factor has been time. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's sort of like, I always have this uneasy balance between the more tanks I have and the more maintenance and so forth I have to do. That's the less time I can spend actually outside dealing with fish in their native environment. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always on this, you know, it's winter time and I, Oh, I should get some more tanks, you know? And, and, um, I should set up more and, you know, get this species and do that. And then come summer, I'm like, why did I do this? Today and I'm, I'm cleaning fish tanks. You know, I got to cut back. And yeah. so I kind of yeah. fluctuate a little that way. And I've never really fallen off the deep end. You know, I know people like that who their whole life is, is maintaining their fish room. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're in it six days, seven days a week for a couple hours a day. And, and, um, you know, I, I just never... I always wanted to be out fishing or snorkeling or, or when I was working or still working, you know, collecting fish mm-hmm. or doing something like that as, as much, you know, not that I want to do that more, but I wanted to have a balance. Well, you know, I wanted to be able to do both. Well, the hobby, I mean, the, the aquarist hobby needs people like you that have such a strong passion for the fish that you're going to go out there and do the research. You're going to go out there and snorkel. You're going to take the pictures and you're going to write those articles. So for, you know, 80% of, it's probably even a higher percentage of that, of the people that just stay local to their area, have their fish rooms, have their tanks, subscribe to Amazonas or, or Tropical Fish Magazine, and then they can live vicariously through people like you because you're out there going out there in the field, you're doing all this research, you're doing this collecting, you're sharing the stories, you're sharing your experience. And then I think that gives us like, now, granted, I want to be more on your side, and I want to go out there and continue to go out and do this international travel and, and, and wild fish collecting. Not so much the more surveying aspect of it. I don't, I don't really want to bring many fish home again after this one first experience, which was fine. But, yeah. um, you know, you're able to read these magazines, live vicariously through your articles, and feel like, yeah, I was just in central Mexico with John, you know, or I was on the, on the, on the Pacific coast in Mexico. I feel pretty satisfied. Now I'm going to go and, you know, do my introvert thing in my fish room and clean my tanks for five or six hours. Like, I think, I think we all, you know, we, we need people like you that aren't going to be saddled with maintaining a hundred tanks. You're actually going to go out there and do that research and do that collecting. Yeah. And I, and I, well, thank you for that, but I, I've gotten, I've gotten, you know, my sort of my mindset is that much as I appreciate a really cool African cichlid or, 
or some kind of armored catfish from South America. I mean, they're awesome. But I'm most interested in, in keeping things that I've actually seen in the wild mm. and seen in their na native habitat and not, not so much trying to create a complete biotope, but at least, you know, have, have a sense of what the conditions they live under and be able to, you know, see these fish that maybe I've seen in some rushing stream and haven't gotten a good look at. Now I can stare at them in a tank and, you know, see how they behave and how they breed and so forth. So I, I as I've gone, you know, when I was younger, yeah, it was just what fish is prettier, what, what fish looks cooler. But um, now I'm, so a lot of times, you know, a lot of the Gadeads I have are kind of unimpressive looking. A lot of the native fish I keep or have kept, you know, aren't particularly spectacular, but, but to me, they're interesting just based on their habitat or based on, you know, some, something, some experience I've had collecting them. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, I, the other thing I've really fortunately been able to uh, avoid is this idea of, you know, every time I knew, see a new species, I have to have it. And so I really, right now I, in Gadeads, I have, I don't know what, four species. And I, rather than, you know, and there's 40 different Gadeads out there. And rather than trying to have an, you know, get a new good eat every year, I'm just focusing on these four and mm -hmm. trying to, you know, trying to maintain them for conservation purposes, but also trying to, you know, understand them better because these are species that I, at least, well, one of them's extirpated in the wild, but the others I've all seen in the wild and I've all, you know, have some sense of where they live in nature. Mm -hmm. which, which are the good eat species that you keep? Uh, right now I have, um, well, I've Ameca splendens, Zogoneticus tequila, Scyphia francese, which are all endemic to this little spring area called Teuchitlan, which is uh, about an hour west of Guadalajara. And then a species that's found not, you know, an hour or so from there, it was named after me, so I feel like I have to have it, uh, Zenatica lion's eye. So those are the four. That's right. You do have a fish named after you. Yeah, I completely. Cool. I didn't even mention that in the bio. Oh my goodness! Because I mean, I, I'm a broken record on this one. To me, like that is that is such a marker of the impact that somebody's had on the hobby that you know you actually have a fish named after you. Um, now, well, that, that yeah, that was one of the truly one of the great honors of my life. And um, you know, again, the people who described it are friends of mine, and and they were making a nice gesture to me, and and you know, and so some of it comes from that. But because they're friends, but mm -hmm. but nonetheless, it was a um, you know it was a great honor, and and I really was extremely flattered and and excited by that, and it was a complete surprise. You know, I knew they were working on this um, this group of Gadeid, a single species was being broken up into three species based on on some new pr primarily genetic information, and um, and I knew it was coming, and I'd been talking to them about their work and was aware of what they were doing and that they were in the process of, you know, splitting the species up and describing two new things. And, but I had no idea they were going to name after me. And then this one friend of mine said, Hey, this paper of the species, um, you know, description is out. Here's a copy. And he sent me a PDF and I was busy with something else. Oh yeah, thanks. And I didn't even look at it. And, um, you know, said, I'll look at that later. And a couple hours later he goes, well, what do you think of the paper? I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm busy. Like, you, you know, I'm like, all right, you know, let me look at it. And then I saw they named after me and, you know, I was flabbergasted. I, I, you know, so this is, this is, this I, is great. I couldn't believe it. And you, he's working, you know, he, 
Gadir but, you know, other, otherwise, you know, he sends me one of his papers. It's like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll read it eventually. But, you know, this is a, what'd you think? What'd you think? Yeah, yeah, this is really cool. So you go to gadirworkinggroup.com and the uh, etymology section for this fish. The species is named for the prominent North American ichthyologist, Dr. John Lyons, who has made substantial contributions to our understanding of the distribution, ecology, diversity, and conservation status of fishes in Mexico and to Gadeids in particular. That's pretty awesome, John. Yeah, it really is. That so, is and again, awesome. these are friends of mine, so they're, I, you know, I, I don't want to downplay it, but they're they're being very nice to me. Yeah, and it's a good looking fish too. What is that? The male that's got that nice splash of orange on the caudal yeah, and the yeah, have, uh, anal. Yeah, uh, You know, they call the original ones, you know, talking eyes and eye, which is what was split up. You know, it was always called the red-tailed gadeid because the males, you know, it looks like their back half's been dipped in orange or mm-hmm. reddish paint. They really are a pretty species, and they're they're interesting. They're they're a little bit pugnacious and, um, <laughs> but they get along, you know, they're, they're not the worst. And, uh, in terms of, you know, getting along with each other and you can flock breed them. And, and, um, so it's, it's been really fun to have them. And I have, I don't know what I have four tanks of them right now. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Since I, I wanted to circle back eventually to Wisconsin, but since we're on the, the topic of Mexico and your experiences there, um, roughly how many how many trips have you made to Mexico? And this would be starting in the, the 80s, right, with that first trip down? Yeah, my, okay. well, I, I counted this up uh, a few few, uh, few months ago before COVID hit because I, I was on a trip to Mexico <clears throat> and came back the very beginning of March just as everything was locking down. Um, so... In terms of total trips, including kind of like vacations and, you know, that sort of thing, I've been there 51 times. Wow. And in terms of, you know, and then I've been to several other places in Latin America as well. So we're probably closer to 60 to Latin America. And then in terms of, you know, scientific uh, things that are primarily scientific visits and, and collecting visits and things like, our, you know, scientific conferences, that kind of thing. Um, that's about 40 or so. Wow. And that the first, the first sign, well, the first time I was in Mexico was 1984. And the first scientific was when I went to help Eduardo on his survey of the Sierra de Manalan was 1986. So 34 years ago. And the, the, the Sierra de Matazlan, is that? Uh, what, Manatlan, Manatlan. Manatlan. What part of Mexico is that in? Because on, on to my left, I have a uh, I have my iPad up with the map of Mexico, and I just sure. I, I always like to have that visual as I talk about something. Yeah, it's um, it's almost it's in the west coast of, of Mexico, in the state of Jalisco. Mm-hmm. So it's a the the Sierra de Manatlan itself, as the crow flies, is about sixty miles inland, and um, it's about a hundred miles. West and a little bit south of Guadalajara, it's also about 60, 70 miles southeast of Puerto Vallarta. Okay. So there's a, if I don't know how detailed your map is, the towns near it are called Outlan and El Grullo. And um, the nearest resort areas, there's one called Manzanillo, which is sort of on the edge of the reserve, and a place called Barra de Navidad and Malaque. And um, so it's, it's, it's near the coast, but far enough inland that mm-hmm. there, that you can't see the ocean or anything like that. You're, you know, there's a ridge of hills between between you and the ocean. You're about sixty miles away. Mm-hmm. And it isn't it, it isn't Jalisco, right? Yes. Okay. It, well, it's the southern end of it extends a little into the state of Colima, 
Okay. I think I should. Most of it's in Jalisco. Yeah, I think I think I'm kind of in that area. Right. Yeah, the you know there's a, you know it's it's a little mountain range, maybe 25 miles mm-hmm. by five miles, and there's just a whole series of of small coastal and subcoastal mm-hmm. just there, and they each have their own name, and so this is one particular piece of of um, of that. Have your travels, I'm guessing maybe no, uh, but like have your travels throughout Mexico, has it kind of extended where you've hit every one of the, the states in Mexico or has it just primarily been concentrated at like West Coast and Central regions? No, I've hit every state in Mexico. Oh, nice. I've, uh, I can't say I've collected in every state in Mexico, but I think there are 31 states, 32 if you count the Mexico City, which is now sort of a quasi-state. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've collected, I think, in all but one of them maybe two of them mm-hmm. so yeah i've worked all over from the yucatan to chiapas on the guatemalan border up to the u.s border in nueva leon and in, um, sonora and uh, tamaulipas and so all over the place again the majority of work has been in central mexico um, but all the way from the west coast on the pacific to the you know the east coast and the gulf of mexico and then lots of of projects and excursions to the north and the south of that mm-hmm. so. yeah I, I lived in san diego for about three years and i've only dipped my toe uh, into travel into mexico with uh, with a church group i went down for a day to tijuana to hang out at mm-hmm. an orphanage um and that was a really really fun experience and that's you know 2000 maybe 2010 so certainly not like you know during the during the you know the good old days when you could just roll across the border and everything was all yeah. good yeah. um so it was you know going with a group that very well experienced had been there before knew exactly where to go um but it's it's you know talking to like uh, Jose Gonzalez you know when he talks about the good deeds and and going down there collecting it's um it's so sad that it's just it's so close to us but it i would love to go there but it's so hard to ignore what's happening in the news just yeah. where the violence seems like it's it, it's kind of almost everywhere, and, and I'm, I'm by no means am I a, a geopolitical or international affairs expert on you know what's happening down there. But um, you know I, I know so many people that having lived in California, having lived in San Diego, that have roots in Mexico and that you know are born there, live here, or you know they live there for a good portion of time. That it, it just seems like a place that I would love to go and travel. It's so close to us, to be able to hop on a plane and you know be there in three four hours. Um, but you know, and, and, and even in your most recent Amazonas article that you, you know, you throw these cautions out there that times have changed and, you know, it, it's, yeah. it's not what it was back when you're going in the eighties or nineties. Yeah, no, it's, that's absolutely true. Even in the eighties and nineties, there were drug issues and there were places we didn't go, but, um, but it was much smaller, much, so much smaller scale and much, well, I won't say less dangerous, but. But um, the the violence wasn't nearly so epi- epidemic, really. Um, the issue in Mexico with with travel and with drug violence is it is it is um, it is geographic in nature, and it and where it's bad and where it's not bad vary over time. And so, yeah, some of the border areas have been consistently bad for a long time. Other border areas aren't bad at all. And that's true for, for when you get away from the border. There are some areas that are traditionally sort of a haven of drug cartels, and there's been a lot of violence. And then other areas that are relatively peaceful and and, um, 
I won't say it's impossible for anything to happen there, but but they just really aren't nearly as problematic. But that changes over time, and so some so a place that was was really kind of scary ten years ago might be okay now, but vice versa, somewhere where you didn't really worry about it too much, where is now an area where there's a lot of violence, and it has to do with you know cartels, you know fighting over turf, right. where sort of boundaries are, where the where the you know the the point of contention is, and then often some sometimes the safest areas are are actually dominated by a particular cartel, but that's the point. They're dominated right. there, so that's there's no need, at least as a tourist. And I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to minimize the the hardship and the pain that this causes for for many you yeah. know, Mexican citizens. Yeah, but yeah. if you're just there as an American tourist, there there you know, and even as a scientist, you're basically there as a tourist. Um, you're, you know, you're, you're going to be okay. And so I've never had any trouble that way, but by the same token, I always work with Mexican scientists. I, I won't say always, but 99% of the time I'm working with collaborators in Mexico and we always do our homework about an area and we, you know, we're aware, you know, they're more aware than I am, of course, of where problem areas are, but we always check locally. And even if the town we're in is fine, we say, well, we want to go up in the hills here to look for this. We always ask, you know, is that, are they growing poppies there? Are they growing marijuana there? Mm. Um, you know, so, and the locals know, and the locals will tell you. And, you know, again, we've never had any trouble. There are some areas where, you know, We'll only go there in an official university or you know, vehicle of some sort, rather than a private vehicle, and we'll only go during the daytime, and um, you know, so things like that. But um, but that being said, I I haven't had any trouble. Knock on wood. Um, Where was this most recent trip uh, to in Mexico? The one the the pre-COVID, your last trip? Yeah, the last trip we were in an area of east central Mexico. Um, primarily in the state of San Luis Potosí. Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting, beautiful area. It's where what are known as the northern swordtails are. These are these uh, a whole bunch of different species of wild-type swordtails, including the Montezuma swordtail, which you may have seen, which mm -hmm. has the super long tail. And then, but, but a whole variety. Some of them have essentially no tail at all. And it's a sort of a carcidic karst region with a lot of waterfalls and springs bubbling out big springs spring-fed rivers and each little basin will have its own species of um of swordtail so we were doing some some work there looking at the status of a couple species and trying to get pictures of, of certain species um and and it was just kind of a quickie trip with a couple of friends of mine and and cover an area and and see some things that i hadn't seen some habitats that i hadn't seen um a couple of years previously, I had run a um, a trip, basically, for interested aquarist, interested fish heads. I've done a couple of these where um, people come down. You know, it's a small group, eight, ten people. Sign me up. Let's go. Next one. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, uh, you'd be welcome. But basically, we uh, want I and one of my Mexican friends will set this up. We'll we'll get a bus, a little mini bus, and a driver. We'll set up an itinerary and we'll go from place to place showing people the habitats and the fish. And we had done one in this area before 
and it had gone pretty well. And I wanted to do some more reconnaissance um, in some area, you know, some specific spots that I hadn't been before and, and check out a couple other areas and um, with the thought of maybe doing this again in, you know, a couple of years. And again, this is all pre-COVID, so mm-hmm. we'll see what how things develop over the next couple of years. But, um, yeah, that was the idea. Get um, And just sort of for my own scientific interest, see some of these things and, and um, understand them a little better. And, and I was familiar with most of the sword tails from that area, but there's a couple of species I hadn't seen, so I wanted to see their habitat and wanted to visit a lab, a guy, uh, Gil Rosenthal, who is out of Texas A&M, has a lab um, actually in the state of Hidalgo, right on the border with San Luis Potosí up in the mountains. And um, he's done some really amazing, interesting work on hybridization between um, two native species of natural hybridization between two native species of of um, of swordtail endemic to this one area. And I wanted to see his lab, see you know some of the fish he'd been working with. I've been reading all his papers and talking about it, and you know nothing beats actually going to the spot and seeing it and handling some of these fish. So that was really fun. Um, we were in the, the town that, um, who, where his lab is a little town in the middle of nowhere in the mountains, but they're having their annual, it was, um, <clears throat> it was their annual sort of town festival. Right. And it was really a lot of fun. It was carnival basically. So it was right before, you know, leading up to Easter and, um, there's a big street festival and parades and, and, you know, fair kind of thing and it was really a blast so and that, and that's that's like honestly like 50 percent of the, the 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 trip to peru was experiencing Iquitos, experiencing you know what i could of their culture of you know the everybody at nighttime going out to their plaza you know plaza de armas was just cracking right. with all the families hanging out and you know yeah. it, it's it, it's amazing being on the amazon collecting right and it's amazing probably going <laughs> to mexico and being in these towns but being able to experience like you know one of their annual celebrations i mean that that just that would culminate a trip for me like that would be 50% of the fun 50% of the experience and just really make it so awesome and that you know going to these places it's not just for the fish but it's also for the people and you know what they do and you know just how they live their yeah. lives and um, getting a, a broader perspective on just how people across the world live. Yeah, no, and, and again, even from a scientific point of view, m- much of maybe the certainly the majority of my interest is in sort of ecology and conservation. And you can't just study the fish in that case. You you have to understand the the landscape, the geography, um, the plants, you know, all the uh, all the other biota. But you also have to understand the people who live in a particular area. You the know, economic situation, what yeah, they're the economic doing, situation, what they're doing the to get by, yep. the political situation. Mm-hmm. And to, obviously to do effective conservation in Mexico, you have to work with Mexican scientists and conservationists. So mm-hmm. so that's always been a big part of the, the trips is, um, you know, meeting people, getting to be friends with people, um, you know, experiencing some of the culture. And I, I don't pretend to, you know, in a, a visit an area for a few days to really understand it, but, but I have a sense of it. You mm-hmm. know, I have a sense of what some of the issues are, both the environmental threats, um, some of the attitudes of the local people who, you know, who's calling the shots locally, uh, what the, 
what the possibilities are, what the potentials are. And, um, you know, and again, it's not going to be me per se doing things, but I, to work with my Mexican colleagues, I, I, I need to have that understanding. Mm-hmm. Perspective. Yeah, yeah, and I don't, I don't pretend to wear this gringo savior cape or anything like that. But right. it was, it was so cool to, to be in Peru. We went to their manatee, um, their manatee. What's the word I'm looking for here? Like uh, rehabilitation center, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, mm-hmm. and, and it's a partnership with Dallas Aquarium, I think. Dallas or Atlanta mm-hmm. Aquarium. Uh, real cool facility. Got to see them, you know, taking some some blood samples and whatnot of, of manatees, and that was a really really cool experience. Um, but to talk with uh, with some of the people there, some of the you know college kids from Lima that were doing a summer in um, in Iquitos, you know, working at this research center, and, and just talking about how you know there is this, even though Iquitos is not the cleanest city, right? And there's a lot of things where it's like, oh man, that's going to end up in the Amazon during the high season. Right. You know, it's 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 not the best as far as sanitation goes. But there is this move for them to educate the youth. Um, and so, you know, in, in a place like Iquitos that depends on ecotourism and that depends on, you know, the Amazon River for um, mm-hmm. economic well-being, to hear that the next generation is very in tune with, yeah, let's conserve these manatees. Let's let's conserve this natural resource that we have and, and help it thrive. Do you see that same kind of thing happening where you go and travel in Mexico? And, and part of what is informing this question is, you know, talking to Jose at, at, in the previous conversation about good deeds that, you know, there's, there's um, like paper mill effluence runoffs from farms and, you know, there's just not the best water practices. And even though, and, and I'm probably paraphrasing and butchering this conversation that, you know, I had with him, but uh, it's like, there's, there is some, some, some government regulation and some attempts to help keep the waterways clean, but then it's like, yeah, maybe in some places they're kind of not following that. Like, do you, yeah, the well, the environmental problems um, in Mexico are far worse than anything we have in the U.S. For I sure. mean, there, there really are some huge issues. The, the biggest one is that most of Mexico, at least the northern two thirds of Mexico, is at least seasonally arid, and so there isn't enough water to go around. Mm. And so the water that is there, I mean, the number one threat to a lot of uh, fish species is just you know rivers and lakes drying up and no water whatsoever. And then certainly there are all sorts of pollution and runoff from fields and, and so forth. And yeah, paper mill pollution is a big issue. That was a, a major thing we worked on in um, the Sierra de Manatlan, the, the river that goes along one, one side of it, had major, major pollution from a sugar mill. And then there's another place near Morelia where it's a major pollution from a paper mill. And, you know, and, and I'm old enough to remember when this was commonplace in the U.S., so where you just had raw sewage or effluent going right into a river or lake. And we've turned things around here through the Clean Water Act and lots of other legislation. Um, but back in the 60s, a lot of our waterways were pretty polluted. And um, we've made a lot of progress since then. And I see a lot of places in Mexico sort of where the U.S. was 50 or 60 years ago. So there's, there are regulations on the books. There are efforts, you know, underway, but Mexico is a much poorer country than we are. So the resources to invest in treatment and so forth and and to enforcement of laws and things aren't aren't there to the same extent. So progress has been slow. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, it's actually very inspirational, I think, to go and work with Mexican conservationists because 
they don't have the resources that are available in the U.S. There isn't the public awareness um, that maybe we take for granted in the U.S. Of, of value of biodiversity, the value of clean water, things like that. There are certainly some, but not, it's not as pervasive as here. And th these guys, these women, men and women, are able to do some amazing things um, just through hard work and and you know shoestring operations and some of the Gadiad conservation work that's been done. Um, yeah, it's really it, it really is exciting what what they've been able to do with uh, you know just kind of with local community support and some you know creative you know partnerships and you know getting a lot from very little money. And so this, where I mentioned earlier, the springs at Tuchitlan, which is west of Guadalajara, where Ameca and Zogeneticus tequila and um, Scifia francesa are all known from. You know, the, the University in Morelia, uh, they've had a big program to reintroduce Zogeneticus tequila there. And now they're in the process, which had been extirpated. And now they're in the process of, of beginning to reintroduce Scipia Francese. And I mean, it's just such a cool project. They don't have a lot of money, but they have all these, uh, you know, hardworking, enthusiastic students and some really good, dedicated faculty people. And they've made partnerships with the local um, municipal government in the town of Tuchitlan. And some of the school teachers and so forth. So there's really cool environmental education program. And they're, you know, they're, they're using all these sort of creative ways to bring these species back. And, and yeah, there are still plenty of big problems and plenty of, of major challenges ahead, but they've, they've been able to really do some cool stuff. And aquarists have played a role in that. Aquarists, a guy named Ivan Dibble, in, um, who, who's now died, but he was a, an aquarist from England. And he had gotten some Zogeneticus tequila and maintained them in England. And in the meantime, they had disappeared from the wild in Mexico and nobody had captive populations in Mexico. And I'm not even, maybe one person in the U.S. had them at the time. And so Ivan, um, who, again, he's not a biologist. He was just like a a machinist who, you know, blue collar worker from London. Just a fish nerd. Um, hmm? Just a fish nerd. Yeah. A real, you know, yeah. A guy with huge fish, all these species and so forth and self-taught. And, um, he made some connections with the folks in Morelia, brought some of these Ogeneticus tequila over on one of his visits, gave them some, uh, a guy named Omar Dominguez, professor Omar Dominguez, um, he set up a facility in Moralia where they basically it called it's called the fish ark is in English for short, um, where he basically tried to set up all the still extant Gudeid species would be kept in captivity there. It'd be, it'd be an ark basically where there was at least a couple tanks of everything that was still alive. And so they got Zogeneticus going there, um, set up this facility, and then eventually when they had a you know big enough colony of some of the species they started to think about reintroducing them. And Ivan channeled a lot of effort from um, both aquarists and public aquariums in Europe. Um, this, he worked with people in the American Live Bears Association here in the United States. Um, 
And so Aquarius began contributing both fish that were going to be repatriated and, um, you know, technical expertise, helping, helping uh, Mexican students, you know, set up tanks and manage tanks and, and breed fish and things like that. And then, um, you know, actually helping out sometimes in some of the projects. And so the Gudead Working Group, um, its genesis was basically stuff that Ivan had started and then Ivan died unexpectedly about 15 years ago. Um, and so, you know, he had been the, the driving force for a lot of these efforts. And so the Gudead Working Group was a response to his death, basically, what do we do now? Mm. And um, a, a group of people in throughout Europe, several different countries, but led by Michael Kirk, who's, um, uh, he works for a public aquarium or a large aquarium in um, Vienna. He started the Gudead Working Group there, it came over to the U.S., he and I got together, I, I started helping on the U.S. end, and so that was my, you know, I'd been working in Mexico strictly as sort of a scientist, and so by the early 2000s, I became aware of these hobbyists who were also interested, and I sort of connected with them and and sort of got back into the hobbyist end of things when it came to um, dealing with Gudeads and, and other Mexican rare species. Mm -hmm. And so, <clears throat> so again, uh, the conservation work that's being done, it's all kind of seat of the pants, low budget stuff, but it, it's been a combination of some really um, hard work and innovate, innovative work by, by Mexican scientists and conservationists aided and, and complemented by, by actual aquarist work. So, you know, where people, the fact that so-and-so kept this species alive in their fish tank for years meant that that species didn't go extinct. Yeah, I mean, there's... And that species was then spread around to other people. It's a little bit more secure now because it's in multiple places, and there are efforts underway, at least for some of the species, then to, to reintroduce them, to bring them back in nature as some of these underlying you know, environmental problems are slowly mm -hmm. dealt with. Yeah, they're, they're, but, but the environmental situation in, Me in Mexico is very very dire mm -hmm. there's lots mm -hmm. and lots of problems particularly yeah. in central mexico well the the two pieces on the note of the that reintroduction of of tequila one is um the the same amazonas issue on mexico that has your great article in about the uh, pacific coast kind of you know pacific coast area collecting there is a really good write-up on this reintroduction effort i think it spans like maybe three pages a lot of pictures yep, yep. Um, and you know, that's actually maybe within the next couple months, I would love to get one of the people that was a part of that to really come on the podcast and just deep dive that. Um, the, the second part of well, that, that was, the, I'm, I'm on that article. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think there's like four or five people. Yeah. On there. Yeah. So, okay. There's, there's so maybe three, three Mexican, okay. um, four Mexicans and then Michael Kirk from Vienna and me. Well, I'd love to have you on again, or if we can reach out to one of the people in Mexico and just kind of really like just dive into all the nuts and bolts of that um, and turn that into its own episode. Because I think there's just sure. so much there that, you know, I think that article is great. Everybody should go and, and, and read that. But that just sounds like something that, you yeah, know, that really the dive first, into. I think, I think she's the first author. Um, I don't have it. In, well, yes, I do have it in front of me. Hold on a second. I think it's. Um, I, had I, forgot to, I forgot to bring my issue as a prop. <laughs> well, you've got yours. Oh, I, 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 uh, let me, uh, well, while you look for that, the second part, Oh, I got um, it right here. I'm just okay. looking to the, so go, go, but go ahead. I was going to say, you know, this is, this is a really great proof in the pudding story for like the cares organization, right? Where 
right. you know, this idea of, you know, Aquarius, home Aquarius, keeping endangered, extinct in the wild species for the hope that someday there could be reintroduction efforts. And I would say, you know, like a skeptical person could look at that and say, that's never going to happen. Like, eh, you know, if, if the environment's jacked, it's, it's done with, you know, you guys are just wasting your time kind of thing. But to have this story like, no, 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 this is the scenario. Like it was literally a guy in England that kept this fish originally from, you know, central Western Mexico, uh, was able to get it back to Mexico. They were able to kind of do this ARC project, build up a, a really healthy population and do a reintroduction uh, of this species. It's like, no, we, we were actually able to do it. Like that is, that is such a cool, you know, proof of concept and actual, you know, uh, success story that this thing, this is real. Yeah. Well, I, I completely agree. And, and I have that Often people, when I'm talking about Gudeed conservation, they'll say, well, yeah, what's the point? We're keeping these species, but the, a lot of these places in Mexico are so devastated, they're never going to be rehabilitated. We're never going to get these fish back there. You know, and it's true. There are places that are probably never going to be rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. But there are enough places that have potential, and the Tuchilan Springs is, is certainly one of the best, where this absolutely can happen. And again, we have a real-world example, the I, I give complete credit to the folks in Moralia for doing this project and doing it right, doing it well. This wasn't some sort of, a, you know, a half-ass, well, let's just get a bucket of fish and throw them in there. You know, mm -hmm. it was, they did all sorts of preliminary work, investigations. They made sure the fish weren't carrying exotic parasites and all sorts of things. And they had, the big issue in Tuchitlan is, is non-native invasive species. And so they had a, a big effort with invasive species. And then, to me, equally important, they work with the local community. This wasn't done in isolation. It was, you know, they, they want the local community to feel pride in this place, pride in this species, and, you know, to keep things going. And so anyway, um, yeah, it's a great project. It, it, it's, it's inspirational, and I'm very proud to have played kind of a peripheral part in it. Um, but, yeah, the, the first author of that article is named Aureli Ramirez. Mm-hmm. And I know her pretty well. And she, her English is pretty decent. Um, and so I think she'd be a great uh, candidate for a, a talk. And, and I can reach out to her if you want. Oh, that would be awesome, John. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I have to talk to her about something else anyway. So there's a crazy guy up in Washington State that uh, wants to talk about fish with you. Is that, does that sound like something you're interested in? <laughs> no, I think she'd love it. Um, awesome. She, she, um, she's been... She's been in the States a few times to visit for um, various, in fact, she was going to be, the American Libraries Association uh, convention was going to be in Florida mm -hmm. back in June and of course got canceled, but um, she was going to be there for that. So she's connected a bit with the hobbyist community too. And um, I don't, you know, she's a graduate student, so she's busy working. I don't think she's maintaining, you know, tanks mm -hmm. in her house, but. But she's been working on this reintroduction project. Now she's working for a PhD on a, on a different lake that has it's the best, largest remaining intact Gudea mm -hmm. habitat in Mexico. And she's working on, um, you know, the community dynamics there and, and conservation of that entire community, which has, I think, seven or eight different species of Gudeads in it, mm -hmm. as well as other species. Yeah. This... So she's, she's pretty tuned in to, to some of the conservation issues, some of the, the impacts and so forth. And, um, yeah, and her, her English, I think is good enough to, to be on something like this. And, um, 
Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll it might take a week or two, but I'll, I'll Oh, no out. worries. Yeah. No worries, John. Yeah. This is, uh, you know, this podcast has been going for, God, I want to say I've been doing this now for two years. Um, you know, uh-huh. trying to, trying to put out episodes at least once every week or two weeks. Uh, it's been a little tough these past few months with, you know, having a, a three-year-old and a, and a one-year-old, uh, plus a full-time, yeah. plus a full-time job. But, yeah, you know, my, uh, well, I, you don't I, need sleep. <laughs> I try, you know, I, I try and hit every facet of anything that's going to be related to the tropical fish hobby, whether it's, you know, having somebody that specializes in man-made fish like Flowerhorn or having a fish food manufacturer mm-hmm. on. But my hard bias is always for like research scientists, people that are doing boots on the ground, um, you know, hands-on research. And so I love, I love uh, bringing those voices to a broader, you know, just aquarist, uh, hobbyist you know, platform. And, you know, for some people, they may tune out and be like, that's a little too far down the academic rabbit hole for me. But for me, I love it. And this is what I would want to hear if I was listening to a podcast. So, you know, having somebody like an actual, you know, a graduate student that is just eyeballs deep in research and, you know, being out there in the field or in a lab is just fantastic. And we haven't even talked about any of your, you know, like local research in Wisconsin or any of those fish or, um, you know, cause I go on, I go on Google scholar and for any guest that's like you that actually has publications, I go and I do research and I look and see kind of what your, uh, body of knowledge of, you know, the information that you've published. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, for me, it's just, I just completely nerd out and it's the stuff that I love. So, well, I'll also, uh, I'll throw out that he's the, last person in the author list on this, but his name, he, I mentioned him already, Omar Dominguez. And um, he's the professor. He's been the head of Fish Arc. He's been the driving force behind this. And and um, I'll reach out to both of them because his English is pretty good. And, um, you know, he deserves credit for a lot of this mm-hmm. stuff. So, you know, Aureli would be a great spokesperson, but I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to slight him. Yeah. Because he well, really has been, he's been the, and he, he has the history, too. I mean, she's mm-hmm. only been in the picture the last four or five years. And he's the guy who received the fish from Ivan Dibble back in the mid-90s, mm. you know. So he has that, that long history of how things, you know, have played out over the years. Yeah. Well, and like, being, you know, higher up in the system, he, he understands maybe some of the, the challenges as well a little better. Hey, bring them both, man. I, I'm always looking yeah, for, I'll, I'll always looking for guests. <laughs> That's, that's awesome. So we can also do a little call to action too, John. So if you've got any, you know, maybe it's the Gadiad working group, or if you've got a couple links to some of these, you know, efforts in Mexico um, that you would like to, to shine a little light on, you know, you can talk about them now. You can send me over links and I'll put them in the show notes so people can go and check it out. Um, you know, cause I like to give people, if you're going to give me your time to come on the podcast and you know, there's no, there's no financial kickback or anything like that. But if, you know, if you sell a product, if you promote a product, or if you just have an effort or a passion project, like I'm always happy to want to give the guests that opportunity to kind of share, you know, Oh, go to, yeah, go to Gadid working group, check out the cool work that they're doing, donate to this project, like whatever it may be. Um, you know, totally give you that opportunity, shoot me over links or, you know, you could talk about it right now. If there was anything that came immediately came to mind yeah. that we haven't already talked about like i said i'm not i'm not in any kind of business or trying to sell it sell anybody anything but i anybody who's interested in conservation of um freshwater fishes even if they're not particularly interested in mexico per se or the gadeads per se um i would still urge them to go to the gadead working group website and you just type in gadead g-o-o-d-e-i-d working group in google and it takes you right to the the website which is like gadeadworkinggroup.com um, and that gives you a framework of sort of how we've tried to do things. Um, 
we have no money. We have no budget. We have just <laughs> a bunch of volunteers. Yep. And yeah, we'll take donations, but that, that money is just going to get turned around and plowed into um, projects in Mexico. We've, we've given several thousand dollars to support students, to, to buy gear, to, you know, um, support workshops, things like that in Mexico. And that, and we try to raise money every year for that very purpose. We also encourage people and, and try to facilitate and promote people maintaining rare goodies in their, in their homes as hobbyists and, and provide a network where people can interact and talk and, and hopefully exchange fish when things get a little easier. Um, but even, you know, even if you're not into good deeds, I think it's a really nice model for, for how you might do this with, with various cichlid species or with other live bears or with, you know, um, loricoreids or something like that. So, so I, I, I'd urge people to look, certainly if you're interested in Gudids and, and Mexico, absolutely. But even if you're not, um, it's worth looking to see how we've tried to do things and how we've tried to apply conservation in the, in a real world context without, you know, a big fancy, you know, non-governmental organization and fundraising and all that kind of stuff. Just a bunch of interested scientists and hobbyists, you know, banding together and for a common, a common goal. Mm -hmm. So that, that would be my main promo. Go to the Gudid Working Group and, and go to the American Libraries website. The American Libraries Association has been a, a huge supporter of our, of, and the Gudid Working Group is kind of nested within that, the North American branch. So I, I want to promote them as well. Um, but there's been, there's a lot of conservation interest, a lot of aquarists doing, you know, maintaining fish specifically for conservation purposes and contributing fish and time and money um, and their own expertise to uh, promoting conservation on the ground mm -hmm. in Mexico. And, and I think it's a, it's a, it's been beneficial in Mexico for sure. And I think they're, it's, it's a nice model for, for doing it elsewhere in the world. Yeah. I was going to ask some, I see that the Gadid working group has conventions. They do American convention, uh, Mexican convention and, uh, European conventions. It seems like every year I was going to ask if you actually go to those and I, sure enough, I see you as speaker <laughs> at these conventions listed here. Uh, that seems like a good time going out to, to whether it's the UK or Vienna to, uh, yeah, to meet with yeah. a bunch of fish nerds and talk Gadids. <laughs> it was, I was in, I was in the UK last November. So basically what it works is the, um, we have the European branch and the North American branch. And the European branch meets once, sometimes twice a year, somewhere in Europe. It rotates around. And this past year it was in uh, Chester, England, which is right outside of Liverpool. And um, at a place called the Chester Zoo, which is a, a big zoo in England. And it's been very involved in conservation work, including conservation work um, in Mexico. So it was a, a fitting place to meet to to meet there, and and so we 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 have a European meeting every year. We have a North American meeting every year, which is always held in concert with the American Live Bears Association meeting, which again was canceled this year. Next year, that's going to be in Detroit in April, assuming we can have it, and there'll be a um, there'll be a Gudiad Working Group meeting within that, and we have. We have everybody brings in all their fish. We have a fish auction to raise funds for conservation um, practices, typically in Mexico. And uh, we have some speakers. It's it's really pretty fun. Is it um, somewhat open to the public, or is it? You have to well, you of... have to you have to register. Okay. Obviously, it's it's a meeting, and ideally, you'd become a member of the American Libraries Association. Mm. The, you need a working group. You just 
tell me you're interested and you're a member. <laughs> Send me your email. That that that's the requirement there. But to actually participate in the American Libraries Association, you know, it's like twenty five, thirty dollars a mm-hmm. year, and you're a member, and um, you get a journal and the whole bit. Um, so, but yeah, anybody who wants to can show up, and um, and then every what we've been trying to do, we've done it twice so far. Is every four years, we have both the European and the North American group meet um, together in uh, in Mexico and meet with our Mexican colleagues, get everyone in one place. We'll have some presentations. We'll hold it somewhere where we're close to uh, an important Gadiad area. So last, uh, when was it? In 2017, we met in Guadalajara and we went to Teuchitlan and saw the reintroduction and had a rally and Omar and other people from that group. We, we met with the... Um, the local municipal government, and they were talking, you know, about their involvement. And so it was, you know, it was really interesting. And, and then we went, you know, and actually, this is a sp- clear spring, so you can go snorkeling with the fish and everything. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so it was a really good time. So about every four years, roughly, we try to do one of those. So I guess the next one would be, when was that? 2018. So the next one would be mm-hmm. 2022, I guess. Somewhere, somewhere in Mexico, that'd be so. Every four years, we try to do that. That's a lot more involved to set up. So yeah. Here. And in the logistics of you know going from the states down to Mexico, you're probably doing some connecting flights either out of what Dallas or Atlanta, and you're flying into Guadalajara. Yeah, it depends where you're coming. I I, I can fly direct from Chicago, um, L.A. You can fly direct Atlanta, Dallas, Houston. Mm-hmm. Guadalajara is the second biggest city, so there's lots of connections. Um, we flew it. We did one in Morelia a few years before that, and then you could either fly into Mexico City and connect, or fly into Mexico City and take a bus. And um, you know that was kind of fun. And um, so yeah, but you know we'll see what happens going forward with that. But the meetings are a lot of fun, and certainly when you're in Mexico, then you actually get to see you know the actual environment, see it firsthand, and mm-hmm. talk to the people involved. And um, you know, and, and again, experience the culture, experience the the landscape, which is, you know, worth the price of admission alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that that seems like a, a a perfect opportunity. If you know, granted, I'm not necessarily throwing an open door, but I guess if somebody was hardcore enough and was you know all in for Gadiads, members of the of the NALA got kind of permission from you, that just seems like, you know, to to go with and try to be in the safest group possible to go in a group like that to be able to go down to yeah. Mexico as yeah. opposed to like you and a buddy, you know, flying into no, Guadalajara exactly. and trying to you know do this yourself and recreate these adventures. No, exactly because. You know, yes, we're completely committed to safety, and and we sort of know know the lay of the land, and, and we know where to go. We that also makes it cheaper. We can set some things up, and you know, transportation and and you know, lodging and food and everything. It's much cheaper than if you're just sort of winging it. Mm-hmm. And and then you're with people who really understand this. You know, you're not saying well, what is this. You know, there's someone who can tell you. Mm-hmm. And you the history they can talk about what you're eating you know what that mountain is in the distance what that plant is you know so it's not just fish it's it's everything mm-hmm. and and it's just fun it's just we had you know we'll have people who are interested in we have these people um who come on some of the trips and meetings they're into what's called micro fishing and their idea is to catch as many different species as they can on hook and line and so they have these 
tiny, tiny, and I've done it, and they have these tiny, tiny hooks. And so their goal was to catch some of these good deeds on hook and line. Oh, jeez. So they did. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I could truthfully say to some of these people, you're probably the only person on Earth who has ever caught this species on a hook before. How does, no, no, I'm a, I'm a fisherman. I love fishing. I've fished in the kelp beds in San Diego from a kayak. Yeah. I have fished in the, the Puget Sound. I've fished, you know, for, for, for bass all over the place. I love, I love fishing. Um, did the, do you have to kind of do that like off to the side? So like the research scientists in Mexico, like don't see you catching. No. <laughs> Are they cool with that? No, because, well, I'm the research scientist. Omar's, <laughs> we, you know, again, no one's, People are handling it gently. They catch, you know, a couple and they're done. Okay. They're not killing them. They're okay. not mishandling it. it. It breeds interest in them. Um, it's legal. You actually don't need a fishing license to fish in Mexico unless you're in a boat. Um, so it's just sort of a fun little pastime. And that's not the only thing they did. You know, uh -huh. it was just, we're here, we're sure, going to catch sure. these fish. And, and so a bunch of us ended up trying it. It was a, it was a gas, you know, because... Yeah, these fish are literally an inch and a half long, mm -hmm. and so it's actually challenging because their mouth is so small that even with these these special custom hooks you get from Japan, which in Japan microfishing is a big deal, um, even with these special, I mean, these are tiny, um, it's hard to keep the fish hooked, and, and it takes a little bit of skill, and so it's really fun trying to catch all these different species there, and... Um, and everyone had a big, you know, we're drinking beers and sitting, you know, standing in the water because it's a nice warm day and catching fish. And then we're going to have some tacos. And in the meantime, then we're going to go snorkeling with these reintroduced. John, you've got me sold, man. You've got me, you've got me sold. It was pretty, it was pretty fun. Well, Michael Barber. My he's... wife came along and she's not a hardcore fish person, but she loved it, well, you know. I, prob and, uh, I probably would It's just went. a beautiful setting. It's a, it, the people are just so warm and nice and friendly and, and it. You know, and you're in the Teuchitlan is in this the shadow of the Tequila volcano, which is a dormant volcano, and that's where the drink gets its name. Mm. So you are the heart of tequila country there, and this isn't you know college thrown down shots. This is drinking the real high end premium stuff, mm -hmm. sipping it. So that's really fun too. <laughs> If you're into any kind of drinking or anything. Well, I, you know, talking to 30, 40 people doing, you know, a various no a good number of episodes and then talking to Michael Barber and always knowing that it was on my bucket list to go go to Peru, do collecting and, and whatnot. But talking right. with him and him saying that, oh, this particular trip is actually going to be on one of the traditional Amazon River style boats. And, oh, you know, yeah. not only are you collecting fish on the river, but we're also fishing for piranha. I'm like that yep. fishing for piranha sold me. And I said, all right. I'm going to go to war with my wife. I'm going to make this trip happen. <laughs> and it was, you know, and now now you've sold me on this idea of, of you know, fishing and hanging out uh, down in Mexico. So, yeah. you know, hopefully no, hopefully in a couple of years it goes down and I can stay in touch with you. And uh, I definitely, I'll definitely, I have a list of people if, if, if a new trip or, or any kind of a meeting like this. I'm on it. I, I I'm have on a mail. You'll, you'll go on. Um, <laughs> Perfect. But no, it, it really is, uh, it's, you know, if you're interested in just, you know, hanging out at the beach and drinking margaritas, this is not that, but, but it's, it's super fun. I can do and, that. Uh, I can do that for about five minutes. And then I'm like, okay, let's go do something. That was, that was fun. <laughs> I laid down for five minutes. Let's go. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm sort of that way. I, I can do it for more than five minutes, but just a couple <laughs> of days, you know, I'm not someone who's going to spend a whole week just laying on the beach. But, and the funny thing I tell people, and this is absolutely true. Um, you know, I've been to Puerto Vallarta many times because it's, it's sort of 
near where I work and on the way to things. But the first four times I was in, it was the fifth time I was in Puerto Vallarta that I actually saw the ocean. That's awesome. So, yeah, because <laughs> we would, it was the nearest town of any size with any kind of accommodations and food stores and stuff to where we were working in the mountains. And so we'd be out all day working and not, you know, sometimes in coastal rivers, but not right next to the ocean. And then at night we'd come back to the town and we did you know, three or four expeditions. So you wouldn't see the ocean. You know, you'd be in some cheap hotel away from the beach. You'd get in after dark, you'd leave early in the morning and, and then, you know, you'd roll, you'd be there for a couple of days and you'd roll on to a, a different place somewhere else. And, uh, so it wasn't until I actually went to a conference that was in Puerto Vallarta that was in one of these, you know, all-inclusive hotels on the beach that that actually saw the ocean in Puerto Vallarta. Well, I think in your article, you talk about, like, I, I, I'm almost positive it's your article where you say, you know, bring the spouse and kids down, leave them at the yeah. resort, and then you go and do your thing. Well, obviously with, you know, locals and, you know, with proper preparation, yeah. you can then go yeah. and do your collecting. Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and... Yeah, I'm usually there on, you know, some kind of a collecting trip. So I so but if you were just there on vacation, that's the whole idea of that article. You could mm -hmm. take an afternoon. You could get a local taxi guy for fairly reasonable to take you off, you know, 30 minutes away up to some of these coastal rivers. Just bring a dip net and a snorkel and, you know, tell the taxi guy to wait or to come back in a couple hours. And um, you can see these fish in their natural habitats, catch them. And, um, it's not technically legal to bring them back. Some people do. Um, but you know, you don't have the necessary permits to do that, but mm -hmm. some people sneak them through or talk their way, but through customs, but, but, um, legally bringing back fish from Mexico is very complicated. But Ooh, I don't want to break any laws in Mexico, man. No, that I is. don't need, particularly, <laughs> since I'm doing this. You're a brave you know, person. Well, not, not you, not you, but whoever does this, man, you. No, I don't either. And, <laughs> yeah. and I, I, you know, on the one hand, it'd be valuable to get some of these fish into the U.S. Oh, for sure. And we we have, through Goodyear Working Group, done a couple of shipments where we've jumped through all the hoops mm -hmm. and, and paid lots of money to, um, you know, importers and things like that. But it's really a pain in the butt yeah. and uh, and pretty expensive to do it legally. And yet I know there are lots of people who, and they're doing it for the best of motives, mm -hmm. who, who sneak fish in. And um, but I'm, I'm not doing that and I'm not advocating that. I, I will just say that to do it legally is very complicated. That is the next Netflix series where they follow <laughs> Americans that go to these, you know, Mexico yeah. or somewhere like Western Africa. And it's all about bringing back fish for the sake of like cares conservation. Like that, that sounds like a Netflix series to me right there. Like they're in their hotel room. It's all super shady and they're showing them how they put it in the socks and all that stuff. <laughs> Well, that is kind of how it is. I, I, mean, I know. I've talked to people that do it. I know. And I'm just like, you're crazy. Yeah. I'm not doing that. Well, and, <laughs> you know, a lot of my European friends, because um, often we'll, it'll be not only people from the States who will go and work with the Mexican, uh, Mexican scientists, but sometimes some European colleagues will come over. And they're aquarists. They're mm -hmm. not scientists. And, um, yeah, they'll do that. They oh, they're ruthless. I feel like they, and they have suitcases and they go through certain airports only because those are the airports where they don't they just scan your luggage they don't actually open it and inspect it you know they have they have it all down yeah. and then they have a song and dance if they're <laughs> if they're 
plot at, uh, at you know, it's coming into oh, the no. and uh, and they get they get their fish back. No sabes. And, they just say what? Well, no sabes. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and the worst that's going to happen on the Mexican end if you were inspected is they just confiscate yeah. you. Know, you're not really going to get in that big of trouble, but um, hopefully, <laughs> or you probably pay a bribe and get them through. To be honest, but but the bigger issue is in your home country, and mm-hmm. um, I don't want to be on a, a list somewhere in the U.S. for being a shady character coming in. Yeah. And so I, I always am above board with it, but I have to say it's a pain in the butt. I feel like from what I've heard in, in conversations I've been in, like Europeans are the most ruthless when it comes to like, you know, bringing stuff, you know, taking stuff out of country, you know, again, yep. for the best of intentions, right. You know, to work yep. with these, these fish and their fish rooms and all that good stuff. But like you're saying that they've got their systems and they, they know, you know, they know at every point, like what their story is going to be. Yep. That is just that is that's a Netflix series, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, the other thing, even even if it was completely legal or you had all the paperwork, people always ask me, you know, well, why don't you bring some fish back? Why don't you do this? And I have to say, having done this, you can either go there to collect fish to bring back, or you can go there and do research. It's just the workload for both of them when I'm there is just too too hard to do mm-hmm. both of them at once, if that makes any sense. No, 100%. So, you know, we put in these, when we're doing a project there, we put in these 14-hour days and are just whipped, you know, when we get back to the wherever we're staying. And, and the last thing I want to do is spend the next two hours, you know, changing water and, and trying to keep these fish alive and, you know, and packaging them up for moving to the next town and things like that. And so typically when we've done these sorts of things, basically there'll be a couple of people who's, if if we're actually going to try to bring fish back, there's a couple of people who that's sort of their job. They just maintain the fish and take care of the fish. And they might not even go out in the field some days Mm. because there's enough to do once you have a, you know, a good number of fish there. If you really want to keep them alive, you know, particularly if you catch them early in the trip and you're not going to leave for a week or two, um, there's a lot of work to do. So that's the other reason why bringing fish back. It's either you go there to specifically collect fish that you're going to bring back and you focus on that, or you go there to collect data and and do the research and, you know, whatever, whatever Mm -hmm. happens to be. And it's really hard to to marry the two. Yeah. uh, I've done it a couple times and it was, it was, it was exhausting. Yeah, we we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but that's one of the things I've really appreciated about getting into birding and bird photography is that you know there <laughs> yeah. there's no temptation, there's no temptation that I'm going to go and you know net that warbler and bring it home and put it in my aviary, like because it, it just that's not a thing. Maybe it is for some really eccentric people, carry, you know. <laughs> have to carry tanks and buckets yep. and air stones and drugs and you know and clear customs and all that sort of no i I, yep. I i like birding too and i was listening to your podcast where you were talking about how you've gotten into it it's and, fun uh, it's fun it is a lot of fun and, yeah. and part of the fun for me is it is so low tech mm-hmm. i i just have binoculars and i go out and i look at birds and i'm not loading up waders and electroshockers and <laughs> Clipboards and you know all this other stuff. So when I when I travel to Mexico, even though most of the gear I use is already there, just carrying down my boots and jugs for preserving stuff and yeah. you know, I'm field uh, materials. It's I, you know I I always am right on the limit of you know 
allowed luggage and weight and you know things like that yeah i mean i'll I'll admit i've invested in the you know 200 to 600 millimeter lens that weighs like 17 pounds and yeah so i'm I'm getting these close-up shots but part of the reason i'm doing that is because i'm still so new i want those photos one i love to share them because it's fun to share these bird photos uh because i hope that there's like this new generational breed of like birders that are like going outside and looking at birds is cool but for identification because I am yeah, not, yeah. I, I'm not anywhere at a point where I'm like, you know, it, aside from my backyard, which I know like the five or six dominant species that visit my bird feeders, um, you know, being able to go back, look at an image blown up, change the, you know, change some settings to really bring out mm-hmm. some color and then make a proper identification and go into my eBird yeah. app and say, yep, I've seen that bird on this date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I get it. And I, you know, I've been birding for 50 years, so I, I'm not an expert by any means, but I know a lot of stuff, and and I'm used to just using binoculars. And and but I I know people who take pictures, and it's wonderful. They're mm-hmm. amazing. Listeners and, are like, oh boy, Randy's going down the birding rabbit hole. Here he goes. Well, the one thing Here I he will goes. say as far as these trips, <laughs> it's, we've had a couple people on them who were just as interested in birds as they were in in, um, in fish, and so they would spend you know half their time because we're pretty low key. It's like, you know, if you want to hang out at the hotel or go walk in the woods, that's your, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go do whatever the planned exercise is that day. And uh, so we've had a number of people go birding and, oh, they've seen some amazing things and and see some amazing, you know, have some amazing pictures. And I, I'm interested enough in birding that I will sometimes, you know, get up and go with them early in the morning and and there's, yeah. a, oh, God, there's some amazing birds. You know, there's, just, I don't know, 30 different species of hummingbirds. And, mm-hmm. and you know, depending on where you are, you know, in the south, most places we go, once you get out of the true highlands, you see parrots. You know, you can, you know, just spectacular, you know, frigate birds near the coast. And and um, one of my favorites, the vermilion flycatcher, which is just this beautiful bird that's in sort of the dry scrub. Mm-hmm. So even, even if you're not seriously birding but just driving around caracara falcons and chachalaca you know birds up in the calling from the woods and stuff so mm-hmm. yeah. so that that you know that adds to the whole experience you know and I've, I've been fortunate to be out in the field with some people who are good birders and you know learned a little bit from them although i by no means an expert on mexican birds yeah um as much as we should probably just do another episode where we talk about birding. <laughs> uh, yeah, how, and I'm not the guy. How I mean, is you know. Puerto of Arthur right now? As far as, you know, obviously COVID, COVID's a thing, but um, from a, you know, from, in, in this is not John giving travel advice by any means, but from your opinion, like how is Puerto Vallarta right now, safety-wise? Um, well, the COVID issue is huge. Right. And, and so that has to be resolved. Mexico is struggling with it. As, just as much as the U.S. is. It's one of the worst parts in the world. But assuming COVID is somehow brought to heel, um, for the moment, Puerto Vallarta is okay. Um, it's, and Puerto Vallarta, you have to remember, it's, it's actually, as I think I said in the article, the resort area is about, boy, it's about 50 miles of coastline. Um, there is the town of Puerto Vallarta itself, which was you know, the original resort area and that's where the airport is but there's a whole series there's an area north of it called Nueva Varta there's the area Miss Maloya to the south there's a, a, an area that's become very trendy to the north called Sealita um, those 
you know, there's just a series and there are different types of resorts depending on what you're looking for. So there's, you know, in Puerto Vallarta itself, the kind of the older, funkier beach hotels and you're right within walking distance of all the clubs and bars and restaurants and souvenir places, you know, lots of activity. And then if you go north to Nuevo Arte, it's it's a lot of all-inclusive places, which, you know, some people sneer at them, but they're wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) You just They're super comfortable. (laughs) You can eat all you want. You know, you're completely on your own. Do whatever you want. You're in this kind of private area where it's quiet. And um, and then Sayulita is, uh, that's like a surfer place, and it's kind of, all these little beachfront restaurants with really, really good food. And then there's, you know, various little jungly, touristy places in between. And then Miss Maloya is sort of a cliff-like area. So the hotels are built on cliffs, and it's a few miles from from the sort of the touristy stores and everything. So it's more the kind of place you go if you just want to just want to chill and watch the ocean and, you know, and, and relax and and um, have a real mellow time, and you know you're not out clubbing every night and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so you can kind of pick the you know the experience you want, and it's it's pretty safe as the resort areas by and large, with a couple of exceptions, are um, are okay. Um, that isn't to say you know there's no place that's 100% safe, but that's probably true in most parts of the world. For sure. Um, so that that isn't a bad area to go, and you know, there's Acapulco is a little rough these days, but most of the other places are okay. What would you say to kind of leave this, uh, you know, to conclude this podcast? If somebody you know wanted to try to get something together outside of you know like a Gadid working group organized thing, and you know they wanted to do some homework, what would be you know, that's going to have maybe it's sword tails, maybe it's some other of the native cichlids of Mexico. Um, what would be like a region where you're like, you know, right now of the places, August 21st, 2020, this is a pretty, as good as it's going to get, you know, Mexican area where, you know, you could be pretty safe, still do your homework kind of thing. Yeah, I, if, if, if you weren't super particular about, you know, I want to see this particular group, which is only found in a certain part of the country, I would absolutely go to Cancun and the Yucatan. Mm. Um, that's a complete tourist area. It's got lots of spectacular, you know, it's got the Caribbean, it's got Mayan ruins. So there's lots of other things to do. But um, a lot of the attractions there are in these sinkholes they call cenotes, which are, it's again, it's a flat karst topography where there's these sinkholes that are filled with water. Um, and they're full of cichlids and they're full of little tetras and they're, you know, uh, there's no sword tails there. There's no good deeds there, but, um, but, you know, you can snorkel in these things and see the cichlids. Some of them you can fish in. Um, some of these are right by the road and are super touristy. Some of them, you know, if you rent a car and are feeling adventurous, you know, they're kind of a little bit off the beaten track. There are lots of them. They're, um, and they're just wonderful to swim in and to, and to, to see stuff. And um, and so Cancun is super easy to get to, super cheap. There's you know every kind of accommodation from you know cheap funky town hotels to these you know really fancy all inclusive places on the beach. You can go scuba diving in the ocean. You can go scuba diving in these cenotes. Um, 
And uh, yeah, if you just wanted to see some native fishes in their native habitats, that's the simplest place. A lot of there's lots of tours that go out to these cenotes. Some of them are are well known, and they're kind of swimming areas. And they'll have a tour like where you'll go to a Mayan ruin for part of the day. Then you'll go, and you, know, you might be hot and sweaty, so you go to a cenote and and go swimming, and you know, and relax, and have something to drink. And um, so that's a super easy way to, that's to awesome. see that. Because I was mildly concerned as I was asking you that question that you were going to come back with like, uh, I don't know if there's really anywhere that I'd that I'd point to, no, but to hear no, no, the no, Cancun, no. that's that's great. And that article again, most of the places in that article. If you get too far afield from those or you go up in the mountains from some of those areas, it can be dicey. But if mm-hmm. you're in the resort itself and then you, you know, you ask around and you listen to what people say, don't dismiss their warnings. Mm, for sure. Um, you know, don't say, oh, I know they're they're exaggerating. You know, don't know. But so a lot of those places, they are in proximity, some little rivers that have some really interesting stuff in them. And um, and then, of course, you have the ocean. There's. I'm just talking strictly about freshwater here, but there's all the ocean species, both for, for scuba and snorkel, for fishing, you know, for just tide pooling, that kind of stuff. Yeah, you got sharks and crocodiles in the ocean, though. I got to, I got to. <laughs> well, you got crocodiles and estuaries. This is, the ocean, right? this is true. This is true. There's a place south of, um, a little aside, there's a place, it's about two hours south of Puerto Vallarta, just north of Mar de Navidad and Malaki, which are another sort of smaller, funkier resort area. And it's called, uh, I think it's called La Manzanita. And it's it's a little town, and it's kind of a, a little sort of lagoon. And the town has protected and promoted their crocodile population. Oh, boy. And so you go into this little town. It's a funky little Mexican town. And there's sort of like a, a walkway looking overlooking the lagoon. You look down, and there are just crocodiles aye, everywhere. Aye, aye. And, you know, in town, there's a... You know, there's there you're sort of up about ten feet, and there's a guardrail and everything. But you walk to where the that intersects the beach. Well, the beach is wide open to the lagoon, and you look down the beach, and there's some <sighs> crocodiles pulled out on the <laughs> lagoon side of the beach. Oh man! Yeah, so it's pretty cool, actually. Um, I, <laughs> these I, are big. I, I mean, these aren't these are like ten foot. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, we what was it? Two months ago, Pam Chin gave her Tang uh, Lake Tanganyika talk via Zoom to the uh, Greater Seattle Aquarium Society, and right. uh, you know I'm all, I'm all aboard about going to Lake Tanganyika, but then she talks about a couple of these areas that are known. Like, yep, that's exactly where crocodiles are, and they still yep. went in the water. Well, she was much more hesitant, but her European counterparts were just you know being European, I guess, to throw the most, you know, egregious generalization out there. And the guides were yeah. like, oh, it's before 12 noon. There shouldn't be any crocodiles there. But after yeah. 12 is when they roll in. And these guys are still going in the water, <laughs> like where it's known man-eating crocodiles in the lake. And that's just, you know, that just gives me goosebumps just hearing yeah, her talk you know, about lake that experience. Lake also has aquatic cobras. Yes. She and yeah, and she had a run in with one of those on one of her trips, too, where she like pops up out of the water and there's a cobra like from her face swimming in the water. Like, oh yeah, my yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I've never been and probably never will go. <sighs> too old to put that on my bucket list. But, but there was a professor here at the university who subsequently left. But he'd been working in Tanganyika for years, and he had all kinds of stories. Oh man, it's there's a lot of things there that could eat and kill you, or you know, poison you, well, or whatever I, it is. My, my biggest, you know, I, I, a buddy of mine works in Kenya, and their biggest fear 
in terms of macro things, getting in the water was actually hippos. Mm, yep, yep. And he's, you know, they're much more dangerous if you're working around water than snakes or crocodiles. Well, it's the number Not one. That those are minimal. Yeah, but. it's like the number one, like animal, like it's the number one killer of humans on yeah. the continent, and right? So like animal said, wise. He said they, they, they always had a, a local guide and they, those guides could just look at the water and say, yeah, there's hippos here. We shouldn't go in the water. And they said one day their local guy was, was, you know, not there for whatever reason. And they had some younger substitute guy who wasn't as knowledgeable. And they went to this pool on this river and the younger guy said, yeah, I don't think there's any hippos here. We can start setting our nets. Oh boy. They went out in the boat and they got out and they started setting their nets and all of a sudden they realized, no, there's hippos here. And it was like this frantic race to shore. They just left the nets in the water and, you know, just got out in time. And he said it was pretty scary. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's uh Oh, yeah, well, well, I think we're gonna leave it at that, John. We're about to bump up to your uh, to your heart stop, man. This is this might be this might be a record for the longest uh, longest interview, John. And it has been an absolute blast. Well, it really has, Randy. And uh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for inviting me. This has been fun. No, absolutely. And if uh, you know if you're available in the next couple months, I want to you know reconnect and finally get a chance to talk about those Wisconsin fish because I, sure. I, I I feel so guilty that I don't give enough love to the the native fish that we've had. I've had a couple people on to talk about um, you know the fish that we have, but you know, just to just to kind of unpack your experience with them, some of the research that you've done, and just give yeah. you know an aquarist a broader perspective on. Oh yeah, we do actually have some pretty cool fish that maybe you're not going to keep a walleye in an aquarium, but it's kind of cool to know this behavior or so on and so forth. Yeah, and then there's there are loads of fish, at least in the Midwest, that are really easy and amenable to keeping an aquarium and actually breeding in aquariums. Well, there was, I think it was, I think it was one of Heiko Heiko Blair's aquariums at SIPS 2019 in China. He had set up a biotope for long-year sunfish and people, and it was amazing. It was a beautiful, beautifully set up tank with beautiful fish. Oh, and the long-eared sunfish, that whole group, we we have a a form of that here. It's a spectacular species. And um, no, and there's darters, there's various minnows Mm -hmm. that are, some of them are quite colorful and all sorts of interesting monkey stuff and we have we have i actually have working on a project here where we're we're reintroducing one of the local endangered species and you know kind of a not quite the same as the the mexican um zoganetis tequila situation but has has some parallels and um so yeah that's so, the trailer we just right now that. you just gave the trailer for uh part two with john <laughs> that's awesome okay yeah happy to talk there uh, we go i'm not going anywhere especially these days yeah, yeah this has been perfect for guests it's like well they're stuck at home they might as well talk to me <laughs> yeah really well john thank you so much man this has been an absolute blast it, it's been great connecting with you and uh yeah look forward to talking with you again and hopefully some future trips down to mexico with you absolutely i'll put you on the list and i will reach out to the folks in mexico and and um see if they're interested and if they are i'll put you in touch awesome john thank you so much okay randy you take care